Hi, I'm Colum and this is my podcast. The key to being a successful undercover agent is being able to think like a criminal and act like a criminal. That's the key to undercover work is if you're going to gain, you're basically looking to gain people's confidence. To me, there's like a continuum of good and evil. And at one end of good, you have maybe your mother, Teresa, and at the other end, you have some people who are pure evil. Welcome, everybody, to episode four of the Cullum Flynn podcast. Two things. Sorry it's been a while. It's taken a bit to upload this podcast. I've been busy. I went to the Holy Land. I was in Israel. I was in Palestine. We were one of the first pilgrimage groups allowed back in. They have been closed for, I think, the best part of a year and a half. But now they've opened this temporary trial the government has where they're allowing small pilgrimage groups to come in who are fully vaccinated. You have to get a PCR test before you travel there. You have to get an antibodies blood test when you arrive. It was pretty intense, but it was worth it because I went with this group from the Vatican and we were filming a report about how the Holy Land is reopening to pilgrims. And it was really beautiful to be at all these sites like the the very spot where they believe Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem to be there and for there to be no tourists at all. You're there on your own. It was spectacular. And we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the old part, the Christian quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. And even that, normally... Oh, I got a message. Uh, even that, they would normally... Stop messaging me. I'm recording the podcast. Even there, I should record this again, but you know what? Let's keep it going. Even in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there would normally be a massive queue going in, but it was empty. There were no people. So anyway, I don't know if you've been to the Holy Land. I would highly recommend it. It is still not possible for individual tourists to go. They announced that they would allow tourists back in in May. Then they pushed it back to July and then they pushed it back to August. But now the cases of coronavirus are going up again in Israel. So I think they're going to push it back again. But you will get there eventually. And whether you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish or even no religion at all, just to be there, it's um, it's an incredible experience. And the people were lovely. Anyway, today's guest, this guy is fantastic. You are in for a treat. Because I first met Mark Ruskin probably four years ago in New York City. I was reporting there. I went to interview him for the BBC. We stood at the side of the road in Lower Manhattan. And the reason we were standing there is because he used to work there. It was his old stamping ground. What makes Mark fascinating? Well, there are a lot of things that make him fascinating, as you'll hear in a minute. But he is, he's a liar almost all of his life, all of his professional life, he has been a liar, a professional one. He was paid to tell lies. He was paid to live a lie. Because Mark Ruskin, he's retired now, but he was an undercover agent for the FBI. Now, most people think there are loads of undercover agents in the United States. It's not true. That's the illusion you get when you watch TV shows and movies, but he was telling me that when we met, yeah, there are a lot of FBI agents, but in the entire United States, there are probably only around a hundred undercover 
FBI agents at any one time. These are people who assume an identity. So they, they become a different person. They have a whole backstory. They change their appearance. They go undercover for years on cases. So this was fascinating talking to Mark Ruskin about one, you know, the people he came into contact with, the criminals, the mafia, the people on Wall Street. He went undercover on Wall Street, but also what it's like to have to live a lie for your job in often life or death situations. If he forgot his backstory, if he forgot elements of the character he was trying to play in front of these criminals, he could have been killed. So I just found that fascinating. And also the psychology of the work that he is doing. So because he would go undercover for years, he would get to know some of the criminals that he was trying to expose. And, you know, some of them, he tells me in this interview that they became kind of friendly. And then the day would come where he would have to say, I'm not the criminal you think I am. I'm actually an undercover FBI agent and you're going to prison. So the psychology of do you ever feel guilty? Do you ever feel that you're provoking them to do more crime? He is a great guy. I was so appreciative that he gave me his time and you are going to enjoy this. Without delaying any further, here he is. The life, the times, the psychology of what it's like to be an undercover FBI agent in the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Ruskin. What part of New York City are you in, Mark Ruskin? Well, I, it's a confidential piece of information. <laughs> no, actually, it's not confidential because anybody can find it probably on the internet in about five minutes. But I'm in Manhattan uh, on the Upper West Side near a beautiful park called Riverside Park. And Mark, we first met three years ago, maybe four years ago in New York City. My my book was published in 2017. So I think it was sometime maybe half a year or so after the book was published and we met in my office and had a nice chat. How can I forget it? <laughs> With the uh, inimitable Flynn interviewing me. <laughs> Great honor. You, you know what? In Ireland, we say that you've got the, the gift of the Blarney. Have you kissed the Blarney? <laughs> have you ever kissed the Blarney Stone, Mark? I've only been to Ireland once, but I have to say Ireland is one of the most wonderful countries I've ever visited and with genuinely friendly people. I've, I've seen friendly people in a multitude of countries when they're friendly because they want to take advantage of you or make some money off of you. But in Ireland, the people are just friendly. I was very... Uh, very impressed. And did you try the Guinness? Yeah, I tried uh, plenty of Guinness stout. And in those days, I still was drinking Irish whiskey because <laughs> uh, my system could metabolize it. Now I think it's it's just a sip here and there. Oh, Mark, but, you were uh, you were drinking it all back then. <laughs> yes, in moderation, of course. Of course. And speaking of back then, let's go back then, but further back. Where were you born? Was it New York City? No, I was born in Paris. French Argentine mother and an American father. They met in, in Paris. My father was going to medical school there. And my mother was an undergraduate student. She had been born and raised in Argentina, but her parents had been French immigrants to Argentina. Ah. And what was so, it like uh, growing up in Paris? Have you fond memories of the city? Oh, I, I love I love Paris. And, and uh, I mean, French is my native language. We spoke French at home, 
even after we moved to the United States, we still spoke French because my mother didn't speak English at that time. When you were a young, young strapping lad running around New York City, getting up to all sorts of mischief, did you dream of someday being a detective or being a law enforcement officer? What was your dream? The dream of becoming an FBI agent was planted fairly early. However, it did not seem like a realistic goal at the time. It was more of a fantasy, like a little boy's fantasy. You know, someone could really become an FBI agent. It just seemed too remote, too much of a fantasy, and, too, and maybe a little too difficult to, to achieve. So you thought it was just something that you see in the movies and on TV shows, but not something that you could do? Yeah, basically. Uh, that's it. And I still had it in the back of my mind when I was in law school. But, but again, it didn't really... Uh, materialize into something which I thought was a credible option until until I was actually out of law school and practicing law as an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York. I remember you telling me when we met in New York, Mark, that you went into law because your parents kind of pushed you. They wanted you to become an attorney. They wanted me to become a professional of some sort. You know, my uh, the, the family tradition was really to become a doctor, a medical doctor. My father was a, a doctor. His father, Simon Ruskin, was an inventor as well as a physician. I mean, he did he developed many new medications. He he's the one who invented procaine penicillin, wow. which which saved the untold number of lives in World War II. Wow, that was your grandfather. The, yeah, Simon Ruskin. He he invented a number before. Apparently, as I understand it, before he invented this form of penicillin, penicillin had to be injected abdominally, and it was a big deal. And with this new form, it could be uh, injected subcutaneously, you know, just right into somebody's arm or thigh or whatever, and was much easier to administer and and could be universally administered. But the, 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 the point of being that I should have gone into medicine if I was going to follow the family tradition, but going to law school was kind of like a second best. I, I, I liked law school. I really did. I did well in law school. When did the three letters, FBI, really come into your life? When did it really become a possibility that you thought that you could achieve? And you're, t- you're like me. You're taking a big slug of tea there, Mark, as I ask you that. And I've got a cup of tea here, too. You know, being an assistant district attorney, you know, one is, of course, involved in the criminal justice system and in, in criminal law. And I found that I, I enjoyed the investigative aspects more than the, than the litigation aspect. And to me, the FBI represented something a lot more exciting. So I applied, uh, I applied to take the test. I mean, getting, getting into the FBI, I can outline it if you'd like. Is you have to jump through a series of hoops, and each hoop is higher and harder to jump through. And at each stage, more and more people are cut off. And what kind of things do they test you on? Or like, are we talking written tests, psychological evaluations, physical tests? How do they pick FBI agents? The, the first step is to register for the, a written test. 50,000, 60,000 people a year ask to take the written test. But you're not allowed to take it unless you meet a certain minimum qualifications. Uh, you have to have a law, either a law degree or an accounting degree or speak a language that they're interested in or have some kind of scientific advanced degree. But you have to, you have, to have some kind of special skills that will benefit the organization. So of the 50 or 60,000 who ask to take the test, maybe 12,000 a year 
are actually allowed to sit for the test. And the test is kind of a combination of, of logic and IQ test and psychological test. It involves about five or six hours. Of the people who took the test, only 20% make it to the next level. So 80% wash out right away with the written test. Wow. And 20% get to go to the next stage, which is called the panel interview, where you're grilled, basically, by three uh, agents for a couple of hours. And if the candidates who sit for the panel interview, only 20% of them go to the next level. Wow. And on the panel interview, what, and they're grilling you, these agents, what kind of questions would they be asking you? Are they putting you in certain scenarios? What would you do in this scenario? What would you do in that scenario? Yeah, it was a mix of that, of scenario-type questions. It was also uh, involved questions about my past, my activities uh, in college, <laughs> and so forth. The uh, it was uh, and that, you know since there are three of them coming at you, that you know they're coming from all directions. So while one's asking you a question, the others are kind of staring you down. So it's a kind of a forbidding experience, but they <laughs> want to see that you can function well under pressure. Do you remember that day when you were sitting there with the three agents? I mean, how did you perform under that pressure, Mark? I, apparently, I, I uh, passed muster because then the, the next stage, they called me in. The applications agent who had administered the test, he, he hands me a revolver, unloaded revolver, looks at his watch and says, okay, when I say now, I want you to pull the trigger as many times as you can. Now, so I start pulling the trigger, one, two, three, four, and then he says, okay, stop. And to this day, I have no idea what they were testing with this, you know, with this exercise. Wow. Was he just trying to figure out how many rounds you could fire in a, like in a few seconds? Something like that. There must have been some requirement where they want to make sure that your hands have enough uh, dexterity or there's muscle strength to even start the training. And they also initiated a background investigation. Do and they once go, they initiate yeah, do, the do background... Do they go way back in your background to become an FBI agent? Do they like go under every stone and every page is turned? Pretty much. I mean, they, they want to make sure that you know, you're know you not a infiltrator, you're not a, a mole from some hostile country or, or from an organized crime family or, or some other you know, threat to the organization. So... So then for the first number of years as an FBI agent, you were kind of a desk agent. You were sitting at a desk investigating things. You weren't an undercover agent straight away. That's correct. And so what kind of crimes for the first number of years were you working on? What kind of cases? Initially, after I graduated from the FBI Academy, which of the original 12,000 people who took the, the written test, 600 about end up becoming an FBI agent. And that 600 of the, remember there was originally 50,000 who wanted to take the test. So wow. you're talking about 600 out of 40, 50,000 become FBI agents. Upon, since I spoke Spanish, I was sent to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and was assigned to the, what was called in those days the reactive squad. The reactive squad was great. I loved it. It's reacting basically to violent crimes, bank robberies, extortions, kidnappings. So while I was not undercover, it was hardly a desk job. You were out, we were out in the field uh, conducting investigations, often by ourselves. I mean, the, I, got, I got to uh, San Juan. I met with the supervisor, a very tall, laconic Texan by the name of John Navaretti, who was uh, very laid back and very wise. And uh, he gave me 10 to 12 files, the keys to a car, 
and said to me, he said, Mark, these are your cases. Go ahead and investigate them. I'll see you in three months. If you have any questions, just feel free to walk into the office. But basically, I was on my own wow. uh, in the island of Puerto Rico. And I, I, for me, it was like a dream job. I couldn't believe it, the amount of independence that they gave someone who was pretty impressive. At least this supervisor was. And you were what age at that time? You're in your 20s or 30s? I had just tur- I turned 30 uh, while at the FBI Academy. So I just turned 30 at that time. And were you married or were you on your own? No, I was on my own. And, and you know, typically, the typical FBI agent is doing this as a second career. 29, 30 is, is about the average age for, for a, new, a new agent. So some are younger, some are older, but that's about, about normal. For the place where I was living, San Juan, uh, Puerto Rico, being a single guy was like not a bad situation <laughs> to be in. Being a single guy who's an FBI agent in beautiful Puerto Rico, so I mean, you probably had a ball when you were there. Yeah, I, you know, I, I liked it a lot. The agents who had families, it, for them, it was very tough because it, it, it's a very high crime area. The whole island, San Juan, had the highest homicide rate for the United States. For someone in my shoes who basically only had to worry about myself, uh, it was it was, it was, a, it was a good assignment. I mean, the work was very exciting, and and the social life was was. Great. I had a condo, a two-bedroom condominium by the beach. You know, I just had to take the elevator down and walk across the street, and I was in in the water, basically. Wow. Uh, so did you so, do any work when you were there? Well, the, I think, I mean, it, for me, it wasn't like work. I mean, it could be, you know, for me, uh, hunting down fugitives, uh, investigating extortionists was, uh, you know, something I look, I really enjoyed doing. So, it, it, and that was for the, but that was only for a year and a half. Then I was... Uh, drafted into something called a Special Operations Group, uh, SOG, as was the acronym. And that was the beginning of my kind of shifting into the covert world. Because the Special Operations Group conducts discrete surveillances. Mo- over there was for, for domestic terrorist groups. And uh, so you're kind of learning to be a ghost. Now you're no longer, now you, you know, we, we'd have long, the, guy, the men would have long hair, the women would be wearing cut off shorts and halter tops uh, and we were not allowed into the office we basically were in a, in a covert capacity not undercover truly because we weren't interacting with criminals in the sense of talking with them and, and getting to know them but rather we were following them finding out who they were meeting with wow. recording their conversations it was it was very cool and it, you learn to be a ghost basically that's really interesting. It's, so, you know, when we think of FBI agents on television, we see them in the sharp suits, always looking, you know, really sharp, really cool. But you had to not stand out. You had to look like you were nothing special. So you had to look ordinary, scruffy, and just kind of lurk around. You basically, that's correct. You essentially, I mean, I was looking more like a, like a beach, beach bum, like a surfer type. You know, I had blonde, long blonde hair, I'd wear like a flowery shirt and and shorts and and you know, sandals or sneakers. So you know, to to all uh, outside uh, eyes, I, I looked like the typical guy who's relocated to Puerto Rico to spend his time surfing and, and hanging out at the beach. And we worked as a team, about five agents in five cars, and 
you know, and we could basically follow someone, keeping track of them without them having a, any idea. And basically, you're learning to be invisible. You know, so we'd have the team, we'd be like, let's say on a highway driving d- down somewhere in, in San Juan, someone would be in a car, two or three cars behind the subject for like maybe 10 minutes. Then on the, on the radio, the radio's all encrypted, the, uh, the guy would say, okay, this is also... We all had nicknames. Also means bear. This is also, I'm beginning to feel a little warm here. Can someone take the eye? So I'd go, okay, uh, I got it. I got it. So he would then signal to get off the highway, take the next exit, and then I would pull into position two or three cars, maybe behind into the, in another lane. He goes off, gets off the highway, and either comes, waits a few minutes and backs up and gets back on the highway, or speeds on the side road and gets back on it. Wow. Now I have the eye, and we'd be rotating back and forth so that there's never the same car behind the the bad guy for more than a few minutes. And these guys, I presume, aren't stupid either. So would they know when they walk into a restaurant, there's likely an agent in here, an agent or two agents somewhere sitting around? Well, I mean, some of them had been trained. Uh, these were members of a group called the Macheteros, which in English would be the Machete Wielders. And... Uh, and they, they sought to make Puerto Rico into an independent communist country like Cuba. And they were, many of them were trained, especially the leaders were trained in Cuba in, in, in all kinds of military and espionage type of technology or techniques. So yes, they, they would be looking. I mean, it was a cat and mouse game for sure. Mm. You know, let's say one of them, if someone would go into a restaurant or into a residence, one of the agents would set up maybe a, a half a block away and keep an eye on the entrance and then when the subject would leave and get back into his car or her car, the agent would not pull out and follow. Never, ever. That would be the, the that would be kiss of death. Instead, he'd announce it on the radio, holding the microphone well below the level of the uh, dashboard so no one could see it. Again, unlike the mov- movies where they hold the microphone up to their face. <laughs> like they hold it down and say, okay, look, Lizard, there was one, one nickname we had for one. Lizard just, uh, he's, he's getting into his car, he's going west, west on, uh, on Calle Norte. Okay, can anybody pick it up? He goes, yeah, I, got, I, I see him coming towards me, he's coming towards me, maybe he just made a right turn, he's now heading. And then someone else who's several blocks away would end up taking the eye. So this was the, uh, I did this for a year and a half in San Juan, and then I was transferred back to New York. Now, from the movies and from the TV shows, I think most people think there are many undercover FBI agents across the United States. But I was surprised when we met in New York and you said to me that at any given time, there's only about 100 or so. That's correct. Just to give you a little perspective on the size of the organization, the NYPD, the New York Police Department, has about 40,000 police officers for the entire United, I'm sorry, for the entire city, mm-hmm. 40,000. The FBI, for the entire United States world, basically, has between 10 and 11,000 agents at any given time. So it's a much smaller organization than people realize. You know, 10,000 agents in a country of 350 million people. Wow. But these, not are not, uh, these are not undercover. These are just FBI agents. They're not undercover agents. That's all agents. 
Many, there are many agents who will do an undercover assignment now and then, but full-time agents who do only undercover work from case to case to case, like as you said, there's only about 100 altogether at any given time. Yeah, this is complete, completely undercover, Mark, isn't it? I mean, you change your identity, you change your name, you change how you look, you, you, you change everything. Basically, you have a fictitious, or in my case, I, over the years, I had a number of fictitious IDs that I developed. At any given time, I might have two or three active fictitious IDs, which would mean I would have, like, in my desk drawer, I'd have three wallets, and, and one wallet would have a driver's license with the name of Alex Perez, another driver's license would have Salvatore Morelli, and the other one, Eduardo Dean, and each one was a full wallet with this. Let's talk about Alex Perez, because I remember we discussed him. How many years were you Alex Perez and not Mark Ruskin? Alex Perez was really one of my favorite IDs. I maybe used him through much of the 90s, uh, on and off. I, I used him for one investigation that lasted two and a half years and resulted in over 50 arrests and then in a number of small undercover operations. You can see the photo online if you Google me, but the Alex Perez had a long blonde ponytail, expensive somewhat, uh, gold chains around my neck and uh, bracelets. I would drive a car. At that time, Miami was the co- ca- cocaine capital of the uh, United States. And the car I would drive had these Florida license plates. So when I would arrive to meet with some new subjects, out steps this guy with a long ponytail and gel in his hair and the jewelry. So before I even opened my mouth, I was like 90% there already. Yeah. You know, I had already gained their confidence. And, and that's, the, that's the key to undercover work, is if you're going to gain, you're basically looking to gain people's confidence. It's funny because so many people go to New York City. When I lived there, I would meet so many aspiring actors and actresses who go to make it an act on Broadway. But this, for you, was acting. If you forgot your lines, if you missed a cue, I mean, it, it could be life or death. If it was that serious. Depending on, on the cases and the subject, you know, you know, certainly a bad mis- a mistake by my part or a mistake in some cases by, on the part of like the informant or the uh, cooperating witness that was working f- with us you know, could, be, uh, could be fatal. It, it, uh, that's absolutely correct. So let's set the scene. I remember you telling me a story which was fascinating. You're in Queens, New York. You're in the back of a shop. The guys in the back are selling counterfeit, I think it was driver's licenses. And you are acting as this Alex Perez going in and out. And you're pretending to buy some counterfeit driver license from them to sell to other people. So what's the scene like? What's it like in that back room? Let me set the scene a little bit. The case involved the fraudulent production of genuine documents. The question was, how are these things being produced? And that was my assignment. Our assignment was to find out how they're doing it, infiltrate, and and start doing it ourselves with the bad guys and stop it. And that's why it took two and a half years. It was a big challenge. One of the subjects that we developed, his name was Mahmoud Nubani, and he was a Palestinian who ran a uh, shop called Holy Land Travel. It's a in an awful neighborhood, and it's a very grim place with metal shutters and a door that's opened, and that was the you know no you, no one can see what's going on in on the inside. I I was able to 
develop, I, I, and you know, in the book, I, I discuss how I did this. I mean, because it's a little long for your podcast, probably, but I was able to develop a relation, business relationship with Mahmoud, and fairly amicable, where I would bring him customers who were individuals who needed to get a full set of fake ID. You know, the driver's license, the car registration, the social security card, the, the, maybe a passport, a green card, the works. And the, can, and the clients I would bring were generally other FBI undercover agents or informants. Okay. So, and, and then I'd, I'd show up. I'd, first, I'd drop by Holy Land visit with Mahmoud in his back office and the office as you described it's in the back you have to go through the shop and you know get past the young toughs who work there in this little office with a metal desk we would chat with some filing cabinets and I would tell him Mahmoud next week I'm going to be bringing by the head of one of the biggest cocaine cartels in Florida this guy's important so we got to treat him with respect and then I come back a week later with a very well dressed somewhat chubby Hispanic man in his mid-40s, very elegant with a expensive watch and some beautiful uh, rings, very aloof. And uh, and that's I, another he, FBI agent, undercover yes, FBI agent, yeah. Exactly. And and Mahmoud would treat him with great deference, and I would treat him with great deference, and uh, we'd arrange to have him photographed for the IDs, and we'd handle the paperwork, and then he would pay me, I'd give Mahmoud his share, and uh, all of the meetings, obviously, I'm carrying a concealed recording device, which in those days was real to real. Yeah, it's, it's not all, like today. Because this, you know, nowadays we have small uh, microphones that are easy to conceal. But back in those days, I mean, you didn't have digital recorders. So if you've got like a tape or real recorder on your body that's actually rolling, turning mechanically, making noise. Well, it, the noise wasn't so much the issue, but God forbid someone should feel it or find it on you because that that would be that would lead to uh, again a melancholy situation yeah. i mean i i was i was carrying a pistol i had an undercover walther ppks which was uh, fairly small with a 32 caliber pistol not a lot of firepower and with someone like mahmoud that was a a, a concern the uh, clients i would bring though uh, one time i brought a in addition to the Hispanic cocaine boss, one time I brought a, a what was posing another. This again, another undercover FBI agent, but this was a tall, black, thin agent with long dreadlocks, and he was posing as the boss of a posse. You know, a posse is a gang, right? So I told Mahmoud, I'm bringing the you know the, this guy. He's the boss of a, of a, one of the toughest, most violent parsies in, in New York City. These guys are, are, are crazy assassins. You got to be really careful with him. And and he played the role to the hilt. He, when he shows up, he wouldn't even go into the store. We had to do it on the sidewalk. And the and this guy the, is, is, with a thick Jamaican accent, he's raving. I mean, he was like yelling and screaming and shouting. But it makes it all seem more believable because an FBI agent would never be acting like this. Right, no, it was 100% credible. The guy was fantastic. He was, and he's yelling, he's saying, if you are, you know, I, I can't do the accent because yeah, you'll f with me, I'll f with you. <laughs> and and uh, you don't know who you're f with. <laughs> I mean, and Mahmoud was visibly like shaken, concerned. Yeah. So, well, when when then I left with the guy, and then when I came back later, uh, Mahmoud was uh, 
telling with him, oh, boy, was I glad when this guy <laughs> left. God bless. But I'm just wondering, you know, when you have the recorder on you, these guys who are doing this work, which is illegal and they're dealing with gangs and they're dealing with criminals, is it not standard if you, when you first came in and you were a new guy and he didn't know you and he didn't trust you, say, yeah, look, I'm open to working with you, but just protocol, you know, no, it's not personal, but put out your hands. I'll get one of my guys to pat you down. Is that not like standard? No, just the opposite. And, but it, it's the kind of thing which, if it happens, it, if you deal with it correctly, then it's not going to be a problem. And then I'll tell you wh- how I would handle these situations. And then I'll tell you about the one client I brought to Mahmoud who did really nearly get us killed. Mm. I, and I think you'll recall the story I'm yeah. talking about, the, the Korean. But first, the key to being a successful undercover agent is being able to think like a criminal and act like a criminal. And by that, I mean not act like a cop, not act like an undercover agent, not have the same motivating factors. A, a cop is looking to make a case, is looking to make the deal, is looking to gather evidence. If you look like you're, if you uh, act like that, like you ask a lot of questions. You're too eager. You're too eager. You're too willing to make a deal without negotiating. You're going to set off alarms. It, a, a, a real criminal, first of all, wants to make money. Second of all, doesn't want to get hurt. And third, doesn't want to get arrested. Uh-huh. So if you act like those are your motivating factors that motivate you, me, the undercover, they're never going to think you're, you're a cop. So if someone were to say to me, okay, I'm just going to frisk you down, or you got to hand over your piece because we're not going to let you meet with Mr. Big if you're carrying a weapon, I would say, okay, fine, no fucking problem. I'll go buy my stuff from the guy across the street. I'll see you around. It's like, I don't care if I make the deal with you guys or somebody else. So if I look like I'm not interested in making the deal, I'm willing to walk away from it. That's not sending off the signals of being a, a cop. That's sending off the signals of being the opposite. And, you know, and if I would act like that, they would generally say, hey, wait a minute, don't, don't go so fast. Okay. Don't take it personally. Come back. Let's, uh, let's talk. Plus, I would always negotiate. If they'd say, okay, the heroin is going to cost you uh, whatever, you know, $100,000 for a unit for 100 grams. I, I say, oh, what are you kidding? I, I, I'll, I'll give you 75 max. And then we end up, of course, in reality, I want to make the deal. And I'll, I'll ultimately, I'll buy it for whatever they ask for. I, I mean, I'll do it reluctantly and after haggling for a while. Tell me about the Korean agent that you were working with, the guy who nearly got the both of you killed. W- what had happened is that I'd been taking different clients, you know, in quotes, to uh, meet with Mahmoud at Holy Land. Most of them, or all of them, were either experienced undercover agents or informants who were experienced in working with, with criminals. And one for one meet, somehow this young Korean agent had been sent by the headquarters office in Manhattan, or apparently he was interested in doing undercover work. And I always assumed that whoever I was working with knew what they were doing and were experienced. So I didn't even explain to him how the scenario was going to be go down mm-hmm. until we were in my undercover car on, on our way to Holy Land. So, 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 <laughs> I can't stop laughing when you keep calling it Holy Land. What yeah. was it meant to be, by the way, Holy Land? Was it? It was like a travel agency. A travel like agency, a, okay. A run down. So you and the agent are on the way to Holy Land, but there ain't nothing holy about this. You know, quite the opposite. <laughs> the... Uh, the but 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 by this point, I was pretty well established with Mahmoud. I mean, well, we we walk into the back room, and unusually, in addition to Mahmoud, standing behind him are two toughs, you know, two young Arab men, maybe in their mid twenties, 
standing with their arms crossed, looking very severe. Myself and the Koreans sit down on these metal chairs right across the desk from Mahmoud, and I make some small talk with Mahmoud, and then Mahmoud turns to the other agent and says to him, all right, what uh, can I do for you? And the agent answers, he goes, well, um, uh, uh, and, and this goes on for a few, what seemed like a, a long time. Then the agent looks at me and he says, um, um, uh, what was your name again? <gasps> oh, he, he froze. He forgot. He panicked. He mm. basically panicked. And the, uh, I looked, everybody's looking at him, staring at him now. And then Mahmoud's looking really angry. And he turns to me and he goes, he misinterpreted. What had happened was that Korean had forgotten my fictitious name uh -huh. of Alex Perez. So that's what he's saying when he says, what was your name again? However, the way Mahmoud interprets it is he turns to me and he goes, what the fuck? Are you bringing people here you don't even know? You bring anybody into this place? Are you out of your mind? Then he's waiting for me to answer, and my heart is like thumping against my chest. And what seemed like a minute or two passed before I responded, but actually, when I listened to the tr the tape that evening when I transcribed it, I really I answered instantaneously. Basically, it was just a, a distortion of time in my mind. I said to Mahmoud, 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 listen, don't worry. The guy who sent him to me is ultra reliable. It's someone I've been dealing with for years. They wouldn't send anybody to me that's not something that you have that's some that you have to worry about. So Mahmoud looks at me, looks at the Korean, looks back and forth a bit. Then he turns and he barks some orders in Korean. I'm sorry, in, uh, in he barks some orders in Arabic to one of the guys standing behind him, and that guy walks out the door. Now I'm thinking, what did he say in Arabic? Did he say, "Go shut the front gates, lock the doors, get the Uzis"? and pull the van up around the back so we can take the bodies out, you know, or something to that, uh, you know, along those lines. So for the next few minutes, we're really unpleasant. Then, ultimately, the, other, the young Arab returns, and he's holding in his hands a bunch of forms, like driver's license forms, uh, social security forms. So at that, when I saw that, I realized everything's okay, and I tell the a Korean agent, listen, why don't you wait outside, okay? I got to talk privately with Mahmoud. So he's happy to leave. So he goes out and I shuts the door and I turn to Mahmoud with a big smile and I said, look, Mahmoud, this guy's obviously a major league asshole. Let's take him to the cleaners, okay? We'll get as much money off this guy as we can. And now Mahmoud's smiling and nodding. You're speaking his and language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, and, the, uh, the young agent has peed his pants and he's standing outside and you're inside patching it up and getting things back on track. Six months later at the Christmas party, the, the, uh, one of the stenographers comes up to me and she goes, Mark, you know, I, I, I transcribed the tape of your meeting there with Mahmoud and the Korean agent. She said, I was never so scared in my life. She said, I thought you, they were going to kill you. Wow. Mark, did you have a wife and kids at this stage or were you still a single man doing all this work? Because I, I must imagine it would be difficult if you had a, a wife and kids and you were putting yourself in such danger. Right. At the time, I did not. I, uh, I, I mean, I know, I know undercover agents who had families and often they had issues. You know, they had, it would develop into some problems. 
And did you have to be? Life. Did you have to be Alex Perez all the time? Was there ever a possibility that they might shadow you, or Mahmoud could have one of his guys? Hey, follow him home this weekend, or just keep an eye on him this weekend, and let's just make sure he's not going into a police station or an FBI building. Like, did you have to be careful to kind of live up to the lifestyle of Alex Perez, even when you weren't on the clock? Very careful. One of the things I learned from doing the from my days in the special operation groups was not just doing surveillance, but doing counter-surveillance, what we call dry cleaning. And the, the first long-term undercover operation I worked was a deep cover case, where I spent a year, 24 hours a day. I had an apartment, I had a job, everything was fictitious, and I would maybe see friends and family maybe once every month or two. For the following cases, like the one with Mahmoud, which was called Run DMV, I realized that I didn't have to have the undercover apartment, at least not live in it, even if I had one, that as long as I dry cleaned when I went home, you know, and so what I would do is, let's say I'm taking the highway to get home, I would go start speeding up and go at like an illegally fast speed and see if anybody else speeds up. Then I'll start going extra slow, and maybe I'm not, it'll be a 70 mile speed limit, I'll drive 30 and see if anybody slows down. Then I'll get off at an exit and see who else gets off. I'll pull off to the side, wait five minutes, let a bunch of cars exit, then back up the exit ramp and get back on the highway. So you do a number of things like that and until you're comfortable that there's no one following you. So I would, I would always dry clean on the way home. And when would Mahmoud be busted? Like you had enough evidence, you had enough recordings on the tape, you had made enough deals, money had passed hands, you had the guy, you had enough evidence. Would you be there in the office and like flash your badge and say you're under arrest with the SWAT team swarm in when you're there? Or would you be gone at that stage? I mean, in, 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 for that particular case, there were 50, there were actually 50 arrests. So it was a big deal. There was, you know, several hundred FBI agents divided into arrest teams. There was conferences to, you know, to, to organize it. It was, it was a big project. I always preferred not to be present at the arrest. Uh, the, I felt psychologically it was already difficult enough, you know, for individuals who had been dealing with me for two years to be all of, a, all of a sudden find out that I wasn't who they thought I was. And uh, to me, I felt that they would become like rubbing salt into the wounds. You know, I wasn't looking to make a statement. You know, they, the cases were made, the evidence was there, and, uh, and then it was off, it was no longer in my hands. I mean, sometimes I had no choice, but, pre- but preferably I, I, I had no, uh, no, no need to, to be part of the, uh, the arrest team. The psychology of undercover work is fascinating because I remember when we were talking and you were telling me about the story you've just told me and about when you were uh, undercover with the mob and you would go to dinners with them and restaurants. But, you know, there's a part of you that gets to know them, of course, but likes them on some level, I'm sure. These people have bad qualities, but they also have good qualities. I remember you talking about like the mob having the family values. There was noble aspects to them. Did you ever feel guilty or did you ever feel like you were betraying the people that you were working with? Early in my undercover career, I and this is typical of, of young age, undercover agents, I think I was a little too overeager to be, be successful. So I worked, I tried to develop relationships which were not just business relationships, but you know, to be friends and socialize with the uh, the subjects and i did feel 
to me, there's like a continuum of good and evil. And at one end of good, you have maybe your mother Teresa, and at the other end, you have some people who are pure evil and very. But but and I and I were characters like that, you know, whom I describe at length in the book. Uh, there's a one guy who was selling counterfeit currency. I don't know if you remember him, Santiago Curas. But I have a, a whole section devoted to him, and that was a very exciting case working with the secret service but, but what made him were, but what made him pure evil as opposed to mcmood in the back room selling the licenses well I, i'll give you an example one time he thought of me as a this evil fugitive from from uh, florida that he looked up to but he once told me that uh, he had an altercation with his girlfriend's mother the other night and well, why was that well because she, his, because uh, she's fifteen years old, right? This guy was in his thirties, mm. and and then I, I kind of make, I said she's fifteen, and I was like a little flabbergasted. Yeah. And then he smiled and he goes, he goes, all my girlfriends are fifteen. Yeah. So, and that's just a starting point, right? Okay. So, but most people are not at either end. Most people are, are right near the middle. You know, they either. Pretty honest, but but and a little dishonest, or a little dishonest, but you know, they, they kind of fall. Into, I mean, so those you could actually become friends with because they weren't, especially with the document case, the driver's licenses and so forth. A lot of the people who were involved in that were not violent criminals, mm. you know, they, they, and they didn't really perceive what they were doing as being all that bad because from their point of view, they weren't looking at the consequences, you know, what the terrorists or fugitives were doing. They just to them, they were selling ID, basically. Yeah. So, the you know one guy, for example, invited me to his wedding. Wow! And it was a, it was a small wedding. Yeah. And did you? And go? I didn't go. No, no. I, I would again. That would have been really inappropriate. I think. I had, oh, I'm going to be in Miami that week. Okay. I'm really sorry. But you in know. your younger days, when you started, you were eager to build a personal relationship with the people you were investigating and become pals right. with them. Right. And that, and that, I did feel bad about it. And what I resolved after that case was that going forward, it was going to be business. It was going to be strictly business. And that's what I did pretty much afterwards. It was, you know, I'd get people's confidence, but I would, my attitude, and I would say it essentially is, hey, listen, you got friends, I got friends. I'm here to make money. You want to make money, I want to make money. We both got our own friends. Let's do business and, and keep it on our level. And that way I was able to avoid the uh, psychological issues, which are monitored and, and by the Bureau. Uh, by the way, and just for the record, I'm not saying that you should have felt bad about it because you yeah. were doing your job, but I could just imagine yeah. myself that even though you knew you're doing the right thing, these are criminals, they're breaking the law, you know, most people are, abide by the law, they don't they break the rules as much as these guys are, but I can just imagine the human, you know, just some of them you're thinking, ah, does he deserve the sentence he's going to get now or did I push him and provoke him because I was bringing people to him would he have committed as much crime if it wasn't for me like for that guy Mahmoud if you weren't bringing him all those clients would he have committed as much crime oh yeah no he was he had a big he had an active volume business going so you know I was bringing him a, a you know client here and a client there but he wasn't living off of me, I tell you that, because you know, I, I'd bring him maybe one every two, three weeks or every month or something like that over a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, but he, no, he had, all these people had, had an active volume business going on, and they were well predicated. You know, we knew, we weren't just randomly 
uh, targeting people, and I mean that's and that's illegal. You know, if uh, if it's being done by law enforcement officers, it's it's a it's a bad thing to do. It, it's it's what the judges call a fishing expedition. You know, you're not allowed to go on a fishing expedition. With the mafia as well, all the work you did putting people behind bars that were in the mob. Do you ever worry because they they've seen your face? They worked with you for a long time, even though you were undercover. Your face was still your face. Did you ever wonder when they were being put away? God, they might come back to get me someday. Like they won't forget. The the mafia guys. The concern is more that if they think you're an informant, generally speaking, they have a, a, a kind of a code of conduct that they won't. They won't go after an FBI agent or DEA agent or a federal any kind of federal agent because they, for one thing, they know that it's inviting, uh, you know, essentially to have a ton of bricks fall on top of their head because it's going to be nothing but trouble. Yeah, I remember you saying that to me that they would bring a world of trouble on themselves, and they're smart enough to know that, and they are also smart enough, even if they feel betrayed, that they were doing their job and you were doing your job too. Right. In the case of the mob, the the and with most people, I think the, the real risk was at the time when they're being arrested. They, they're full of, uh, they're very angry and and most, but generally afterwards, after they talk to their lawyers and so forth, you know, they realize that any efforts at retribution are going to invite, you know, an extra twenty, thirty years in prison. When we stood on the sidewalk. A number of years ago down in lower manhattan and wall street i was surprised when i asked you my final question and I'll, I'll ask you again i asked you out of all the people you dealt with and all the people you went undercover on which group were the most despicable or which ones did you despise the most and your answer was when i worked on wall street the uh, the first long-term undercover operation was called comcore commodities corruption and the subjects were brokers, basically, uh, you know, professional Wall Street brokers, stealing money, let's say, from re- maybe thousands of retired people or people without, you know, who, who would lose their, their pensions, who would lose their, their life savings. These were individuals who would sell their own mother if they felt they could make a profit. And, and you know, I spent a year and a half altogether working in that case and the 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 real majority of the uh, of the subjects were just vulgar i mean there were some who weren't but many many were vulgar and uh, were gr- greedy to a level that uh, is uh, overwhelming you know very impressive so i would say they they were pretty much uh, among the worst people i i dealt with there, there were many drug dealers or uh, other types of, of uh, rogues who were had more human uh, k- kindness than these guys. Wow. What age are you today, Mark? Today I am 67 years old. 67 years young. And how are you feeling? Yeah. Knock, on, knock on wood. You know, I, I retired reluctantly, uh, but the FBI has mandatory, uh, has mandatory retirement at a certain age. You know, 57 is the, is the obligatory age. I was able to obtain a one-year extension because I was, I was actually working five undercover operations simultaneously at the time, so they granted me a, a year except, uh, extra. But then after, at 58... 
does undercover work change you in any way when you are so much diving into these characters and you're becoming Alex Perez for you know a long period of time and you're eating thinking drinking this character and then you're working you were a completely different character when you were undercover on Wall Street do little bits of these fictitious personalities stay with you forever you know the one thing I think is worth mentioning is that it allows one to live in different cultures and to learn what different cultures are like, which most people would never see, ever. And, and not like an anthropologist. It's not like a professor of anthropology who goes and visits the tribe and, and, and observes them. It actually allowed me to be an insider. I mean, I was part of each of these cultures. I had interacted as the, as a member with all these. So what I learned about the world, I think, is has given me a really unique perspective because I've been in all these different worlds and I've seen how the people in these different worlds perceive and, and digest the world and the information around them. So has a little bit stayed with me? It's hard to tell, but certainly my perspective is, uh, on the world is, a, I think, is a pretty unique perspective especially since most undercover agents don't work the variety of cases. You know, there are many undercover agents who are better than I am, but they would, for the, overwhelmingly, they would spend their careers either working drugs or working white-collar crime or working terrorism, but not different variety of cases. I worked all of the different cases. And like in the movies, Mark, when I see some undercover FBI agents that cross the Rubicon and they go over to the dark side, were you ever tempted when you were on Wall Street because you trained to be uh, was it was a stockbroker or you trained to be a seller, a day trader, a commodities commodities broker, a commodities broker? When you saw the yeah. money that was to be made, the quick book, were you ever tempted? This is a good life I could live. Well, I mean, it occurred to me that it may be a good life if I did it honestly. Even you know, to to use what I'd learned to mm. to be an honest broker. You don't have to. I mean, not, they weren't all crooked. Uh, they, you know, the, the percentage they were crooked and did a lot of damage, but there was certainly a lot. But I, I don't think uh, there are agents, undercover agents, who did cross over, at, and there are some who ended up in jail. And that's why part of what motivated the FBI to start what is called the Undercover Safeguard Unit, which I was part of for a few years actually, which selects and monitors agents to make sure that they stay within psychological parameters and operational parameters and and don't and if they look like they're beginning to cross the line to to pull them out and bring them back draw them back in wow it must be a difficult adjustment when you retire after a life like that to you know to go to the ordinary everyday life of it, it 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 takes a couple of years of, uh, to adapt it really does that's true i mean it's a it's no joke the the uh, once it's you, you, once you've been part of a culture like that, uh, like uh, the, the culture of the uh, the FBI for almost three decades, it's a it's a real adjustment to be back in. You know, now uh, writing the book helped. You know, the, the, being able to reflect on my career and put it on paper definitely helped me make the transition into uh, some somewhat of a normal life. Well, listen, Alex Press, I, I mean, Mark Ruskin, it's been <laughs> great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. And uh, I'm glad that in my five years in New York, you were the closest I came to being involved with uh, any law enforcement officers. Well, that's great. That should, should, should stay that way then. <laughs> yeah.
Thank you so much, Mark Ruskin, for your time, for being so generous and being so open. What a unique insight into the life and times of a former undercover FBI agent. Uh, what a guy. Mark Ruskin. Check out his book as well that's on Amazon and download it, read it. More great stories in there too. That is it for episode four of the Colum Flynn podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Shoot me a message on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you thought. If you have any recommendations of people you would like to hear on this. And until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.